Good evening, everyone. Um, raise your hand if this is your first time joining us. Anybody? Couple people. All right, welcome. Thank you for thank you for coming out. Um, uh, we're we're really excited to see our community continue to grow and change, not just um, by being a welcoming place for people to come and to worship God, but also physically. Like we've spent so much time this week putting all of this together. A lot of people put their blood, sweat, and tears, quite literally, into these new platforms and into our, our, you know, our, our visuals and everything in here. And so I just want to thank everybody that was able to contribute to that. Uh, it really makes a day like today uh, really special. Um, you know, as I was preparing this week and I was kind of asking the Lord, like, what, what on earth do you want me to do for Easter? Like, this is like, this is the big one. You know, there's a lot of extra uh, pressure in my profession to make this one like the one. Like if anybody's going to remember a sermon, it's got to be the Easter one. If it's not the Easter one, I have to wait until Christmas to actually redeem it and get y'all <laughs> saved. And, uh, you know, there's so many ways that you can go with the Easter story. There's so many different strands that you can pick up and you can focus on all of these different aspects. And I think even just that speaks to the magnitude of what it is that we're celebrating today. That not only are we commemorating something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, but we're looking at what are the implications for that today? Like, how does that affect us? What's the so what? Are we just telling these stories about some guy that lived 2,000 years ago, or does it actually transform us today? And um, while I was studying uh, last week, I was, I was kind of filling in the gaps from some of the, um, the different parts of the chapters that we had, didn't get to go over in our series, and I really honed in on this word advocate and, and paraclete. And that's what I really felt like the Lord wants us to look at today. We're going to be looking at how it's the spirit of Jesus um, that's been given to us in order to help us to inaugurate a new world. Um, and, and we've been in this series for several months now, back in December. I really felt like the Lord calling us to recenter on the story of Jesus and to allow the Gospel of John to show us what Jesus is really like. So we call this series, In Search of the Beloved. And essentially, it's about this core of belovedness that we find in the Gospel of John, that we are the beloved. Whenever John writes about himself in his, in his Gospel, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or sometimes he'll say, the beloved disciple. And it's not a way to kind of rub it in our faces that he knew Jesus and we didn't, but it's a way of putting himself in the third person to invite us to put ourselves in his part of the story, to say, what this is all about is us recognizing that we are the disciple whom Jesus loves, that you, right here, right now, in this moment, you are the beloved disciple. You're the one that, that, that Jesus uh, embraces. As we looked at last week, you're the one who inclines your head upon the breast of Jesus in order to hear the heartbeat of God. And so this whole series, we've been looking at how is it that God pursues us and in turn we pursue God and allowing that definition of love to recenter our community, to give us that foundation of belovedness that as we kind of cast off into the next series and looking at what does it mean for us to be loving community and then even beyond that, what does it mean for us to be bold explorers in God's new world, to have that foundation of God's belovedness, his pursuit of us is absolutely paramount. And so rather than doing one sermon where I try to pack in the entire gospel message and we have an altar call and everybody gets saved and we run over to Lake Ivanhoe and I baptize a lot of you, we're just going to focus in on this one part of it. Because this, is, this, 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 this day, the end of this series, this is the climactic moment. This is the so what. 
This is the the point in the story where all of the signs of Jesus, all of the words of Jesus, all of his actions have been working up to this moment. And this weekend, we got to, to celebrate that through Good Friday, through Holy Saturday, and now on Easter Sunday. And so we stand today on the the, the foundation of resurrection, saying that we have been given the spirit of Jesus to inaugurate a new world. And so what I want to do is look at two very particular parts of the story of John. One from John 14, and then we're going to jump ahead to John 20. We're going to look at some of the words of Jesus at the Last Supper in those final moments with his disciples when he's offering them all of these different symbols and this language, and he's saying, I know you don't understand this yet. I know this doesn't make sense. And that's okay. Just wait. Just wait, and you're going to see how this all ties together. And as we pass through the crucifixion, I was re- reflecting on, on Good Friday, how you know, Good Friday is, is us witnessing the way in which God decided to save the world and reconcile it onto himself. It wasn't to come in with more violence and a bigger stick in order to get us all in line. But it's God sacrificing God for our behalf to open up the way, to pass through death, to bring us new life. Yesterday on on Holy Saturday, we kind of sit in this quiet moment, this this breath. We become essentially existential atheists. We, We experience the absence of God as God himself did. Because when we allow that to happen, when we pass through the Good Friday moment, when we pause on the Holy Saturday moment, When we come to Easter Sunday, we're ready for God to be resurrected as he really is. Not as the way that we've painted him. Not as the way that we've assumed that he works. Not as the way that we assume that he looks. But on Easter Sunday, on the resurrection of Jesus, we're ready to see God as he truly is. And so we're going to be looking at this idea of the the spirit of Jesus, that, that God has given us this advocate in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus that guides us in the modern world. And so I kind of want to look at it from three angles. The first is this, the spirit of Jesus is our advocate. The spirit of Jesus is our advocate. If you want to turn to John 14, remember this is at the Last Supper. So Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, as we looked at last week. He's told them that one of them is going to betray him. He's broken bread with them. And he continues on with this. We're going to be jumping in in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you. And will be in you. I want to focus in on that phrase, another advocate. Another advocate. This is an absolutely fascinating phrase. In the Greek, the word for advocate is paraclete. So if you're playing Ryan's sermon bingo at home, there's your Greek word uh, for the night. But the word is paraclete. And it, it's usually translated as advocate and comforter, and it has all of these different facets to it. But when it says comforter, it's talking about the one who comes alongside of us. That's what the word literally means. Someone who comes alongside of us and advocates for us. And the imagery that advocate paints for us is the defense attorney. The one who comes and pleads our case. And a lot of times in scripture we see the opposite ascribed to the Satan, that he is the prosecuting attorney. He is the accuser. How many of you in here are lawyers? Maybe you don't want to admit to that. That's fine. That's fine. But Jesus is our defense attorney. 
The Spirit of God is our advocate, coming alongside of us, comforting us, but also defending us. In Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, they actually borrowed the same word from the Greeks in parakleta, but it had a slightly different fascinating meaning in Aramaic. It means comforter as well, but the two parts of the word literally mean to be saved from a curse. So when they would speak this word in Aramaic, not only are they saying comforter and, and advocate defense attorney, but they're also saying the one who saves us from a curse into something new. And if that word, advocate, wasn't fascinating enough, Jesus says that I'm going to, and the Father will give you another advocate. You know, sometimes the, I think the Trinity, it's still one of the most complicated things in all of Christianity. But sometimes we look at the scriptures and we say, okay, there was Yahweh, which we kind of call the Father, and he was the Old Testament version of God. So he starts in Genesis 1 and he finishes up in whatever the end of the Old Testament is. And then there's this break, and then there's the New Testament, and now God is Jesus. And so we have Jesus as our God for about 33 years. Unfortunately, his ministry gets cut short. And then we get the Holy Spirit starting in Acts chapter 1, and that's where we live today. And many of us, that's kind of our understanding of how God works. We have one God, but he's kind of shown up in three different versions throughout the years, kind of like Doctor Who. You know, he just keeps regenerating, and he's going to be a little bit different, and he's got a little bit of an attitude each time. And it's very easy to read this portion and think that when, when Jesus says, the Father's going to give you another advocate. So I'm kind of done, I've, I've worked my course, and then he's going to send somebody else. But the beautiful thing here with this word, another is it really means to leave behind. So what Jesus is really saying here is, the Father's going to give you another advocate. But what he's really saying is, I'm leaving behind my own spirit. I'm leaving behind who I am. And this is important, because what we recognize from the beginning of the story in Deuteronomy, when, when God calls Israel to worship, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's never changed. See, God's character never changes. God's nature never changes. But our understanding of his nature does. And so God reveals himself in the person of Christ. And then Christ releases the spirit. And it's the same spirit of the Father that is the spirit of the Son. To be that same kind of advocate that Jesus is. That even Jesus spoke of himself in those same terms, saying, I'm going to the, to the right hand of the Father to advocate for you. And what does that mean? That means Jesus is sitting there and God goes, seriously, again? And Jesus goes, okay, Father, I know, I know what he did this morning, but remember what I did. And God says, okay, you're right. So Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father advocating for you by name. But you see, he sends his spirit as well to advocate, to come alongside of us, to comfort us in this present moment, that God is still one, but he's also this threeness, that God is this, this divine community unto himself, and we get to have relationship with all three persons of who he is. And so Jesus is parakleton. Jesus is the advocate. Jesus is the comforter who comes alongside of us today. Because when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he could only be in one place at one time. But when Jesus releases his spirit into the world, he can be in all places everywhere. And it was only when Jesus was able to offer us his spirit that he could minister to each one of us wherever we go, wherever you and I go, 
Jesus is with us because his spirit is within us and alongside of us, ministering to us, speaking to us, guiding us. And I love when we step back and look at the bigger narrative of the Gospel of John. What began in John chapter 1 with in the beginning was the word of God and the word of God was with God and the word was God. We begin the story with the word of God. But now we're finishing up the story with the spirit of God. And that's the way he works. That out of the mind of God, he speaks. And when he speaks, there's movement, there's change, there's transformation, there's action. And so we recognize that in the grand climax of what Jesus is preparing his disciples to receive, what you and I get to receive today is the same spirit that is the action of God in our lives that brings us into transformation. And that brings me to my second point. The spirit of Jesus transforms us into a new creation. The spirit of Jesus transforms us into a new creation. I want to look at this specifically through three angles, I think, that John is inviting us to examine. The first is belovedness, and then courage, and then peace. Then when we talk about Jesus transforming us into new creation, what he's saying is, I'm going to send my spirit to work in you, but also to create in you a conduit to administer my kingdom wherever you go. Because the fabric of the kingdom of God is his character. The fabric, what the kingdom is made out of. It's not a place that you can point to. It doesn't have uh, defined boundaries like a country would. But the kingdom of God is the administration of his character flowing in you and through you. But Jesus needs to transform you from the inside out in order to see that kingdom manifest. So we're going to continue reading uh, in chapter 14 in the 18th verse. Jesus goes on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Now let's just pause and have mad sympathy for this guy. Okay, this is the equivalent of being in Germany in 1946 and your first name happens to be Adolf. And everyone's like, oh, no, 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 no. Not that Adolf, the other guy. So this guy, Judas not the one that just betrayed Jesus, is probably considering a name change, probably why we don't call any of our babies Judas, says this. Judas, that's not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And isn't this a question that we ask ourselves so often? Look at what's been going on in the world just over the past couple weeks with all the stuff that's going on in Syria, with all this brewing and in North Korea, with these, these riots all over the place, Venezuela, all of these different countries. And we look at this and we go, wouldn't it be easier if God just showed up? Wouldn't it be easier if the clouds just parted over the temple and Jesus descended and there was his two prophets and the, the beast with the four heads and the, the wheel within a wheel floating in beneath it? That would be really obvious and really helpful. And it's amazing that this Judas is standing here looking at Jesus and saying, why don't you just reveal yourself to the world the way that you do to us? 
And I love what Jesus' response is here because I think it's the same thing that Jesus is speaking to us even 2,000 years on. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So the first thing that I want us to look at, what is, it, what is the evidence of the Spirit of Jesus at work in our lives, in the way that it transforms us, is this core concept in John's Gospel of belovedness. Of belovedness, that the same voice that proclaims over Jesus at his uh, baptism, this is my son whom I love and him I'm well pleased, gazes down at you with that same level of affection, says, this is my son, this is my daughter. I'm so proud of him. I'm so fond of her. He hasn't done anything yet. She hasn't done anything yet in order to earn my love. This is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. There's a chosenness. There's an acceptance to the way that you and I are invited to be transformed into the beloved of Christ. In this passage, Jesus starts by saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, in the Old Testament, there were these three images that become the archetypes for those who find themselves on the outside. The orphans, the widows, the foreigners. And time and again, God promises that the major work he's going to do in the world is to gather up all of the rejects, to gather up all of those who are pushed to the outside of society. He's going to bring them in, and he's going to build a new family out of them. Because this is what we do in our human nature, is we categorize people, and we, we find that one little thing about them that we can point at that's, that separates them, that makes us feel more powerful than they are. And we create orphans, we create widows, and we create foreigners. And what are those three spirits or those three attitudes that Jesus is seeking to remedy uh, in calling us the beloved? I think the orphan is the spirit of abandonment. The orphan spirit is when someone said to you at some point in your life, you're not welcome here. You don't have what it takes. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Nobody understands you. You see, when we're really young, those things are spoken to us and make us feel like we don't belong, that we're not the beloved, that we don't meet the grade of whatever it takes to be part of the tribe. When we talk about the spirit of the widow, what are we talking about? We're talking about a spirit of disappointment, of, of having something and then losing it and living out of that cycle of disappointment over and over again. When we talk about the spirit of the foreigner, we're talking about that disorientation and dislocation, almost a geographical spot where you don't fit in. I've spoken before about how eight months ago I was kind of teetering on the edge of burnout and I was kind of recognizing all of the signals within my own story and I needed to step back a little bit and I needed to, to seek out some ways to allow the Spirit to work within me and to bring some healing to things that I kind of knew were right below the surface but I didn't really want to admit to them. You know those things? Do you feel them sometimes? Maybe you don't want to name them but you kind of, they're aware that they're, you're aware that they're there but you don't want to know that you know. And so I took a step back and I was going through this process of like really stepping in with the Lord and saying, God, like, 
like, like David prays, like, Lord, reveal my heart to me. Show me my anxieties. Because you realize that the things that you don't recognize from your story, you're going to still live out of them, right? These are, this is why you do the things that you don't want to do, and you don't do the things that you do want to do. Because there's been something in your story that whether you recognize it or not, you're going to continue to react out of that. And so there was this one day that um, I was over at the Cathedral of St. Luke's downtown, and I was getting ready to go in at noon and, and take communion. And I was asking this question of the Lord, like, I feel this sense of dislocation. Now, if there's two things that anybody knows about my story. Number one, I am a, literally a foreigner. And number two, I'm also a spiritual foreigner. I was born in Northern Ireland, and at age five, uh, my parents moved here. Uh, my dad is an Anglican priest. And, and I, I, I was sitting here asking the Lord, like, when I feel insecure, okay, when I feel like it's, something's not right, to me, it's almost like this geographical notion that things aren't the way they should be. The best way that I can describe it is I kind of feel like I'm three feet to the right of where I should be. Like, everything's so familiar, but it just, I feel disoriented. And that's what it's like for me when I'm insecure, and so I'm kind of asking the Lord, what is this insecurity within me? What's this fear within me that makes me feel that sentiment of dislocation or disorientation? And the Lord brought to mind my own story of literally being a foreigner. Now, at five years old, I was so impressionable. I was still forming uh, my idea of who I am, but also of how I think the world works. And I was moved from one geographical location into another, from one culture into another, how many of you dual culture babies are in here? Can I get an amen? And the weird thing is that, you know, if, if we had gone with the original plan, which is that we were going to move to Africa and my dad was going to be a missionary, it would feel so obviously different that I think even at five, I probably could have understood, okay, we're on the mission field. This is a different culture. We, I've got to acclimate to it. But what I remember of being five was that everything was similar, but not the same. Everybody spoke English, sort of. Wasn't very good English here. You missed all the U's and all of these amazing words, and you talk about enunciating instead of pronunciating, and all of these different things. But everybody kind of spoke the same language, and there were a lot of the same traditions, but there were all these little things that, that I would do or I would say that were kind of thrown back into my face as a five-year-old. And there were these little reminders of like, oh, you don't actually really belong here. And if you want to know the viciousness, if you want proof of original sin, y'all should go and substitute teach in a first grade classroom. <laughs> because what do we do when we're little? We just look for that one thing that's different about somebody and we pick at it and we need at it in order to have some sense of power that we belong because they don't. And I remember in those first several years, that was so much of my story, these little reminders every once in a while of, oh, you don't quite belong here. I know this feels similar, but you don't quite belong. And so the Lord reminded me of this, that, that so much of my story has been narrated by being literally a foreigner, that even 27 years on, I still have that sentiment because it's so deeply embedded in my own story. And then the second thing he said to me was, look up. And I look up and here's this absolutely gorgeous cathedral that I'm sitting next to. How many of you have been to the Cathedral of St. Luke downtown? Beautiful. Go into it. You won't believe there's a place like this in Orlando. It's gorgeous. And the Lord said, not only are you 
uh, a, a, a literal foreigner. But you are also a spiritual foreigner. That I was brought up in the Anglican liturgical church. And about 12 years ago, um, I entered into my first charismatic church. And it was, it was quite a shock for me. It was very, very different. And I realized that so much of my insecurity in this job, in this community, was the lies that I was hearing because of my story. And in stepping forward to lead that were saying, no, 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 you don't really belong here. You're not really doing it right. This isn't really home for you. And then the pain of, of going into this cathedral and, and taking communion from the priest and going, but you don't really belong here either. And that feeling of dislocation, of being a foreigner without a home. And these are the lies that I heard. And so much of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life over the past eight months has been addressing those lies specifically. Because when I read this, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I hear, I will not leave you as foreigners. I will not let you drift back out. I will not let what has happened to you in the past remain a curse. Because the truth is that God does not change the events of our past. He does not go back and change the story, but he changes the outcome of the story. That the things that someone said to you when you were little, the things that were done to you, that were intended to be a curse that would walk you away from God, that would walk you away from your identity as his son or his daughter, they're now used as blessings because they've brought you back into the family. And not only that, but God begins to use your story of being the orphan, of being the widow, of being the foreigner, and he empowers you to turn around and come alongside of somebody else and to say, I absolutely know how you feel. I know that place. I know that feeling of disorientation. I know that feeling of disappointment. I know that feeling of abandonment. But let me reveal to you what Jesus has done in my life and to believe that he wants to do the same thing in yours. Jesus' acceptance of us, his calling of us as his beloved, wipes away our shame and our guilt that are the natural outpourings of the things that have been done to us in the past. And this is just one of the many ways that we see resurrection of our true selves, resurrection of our stories, resurrection of the dead bones in our past that said, this is it and it's over and it's done with. This story's not moving any farther forward. Jesus says, no, I'm going to do something with that. I'm going to breathe life into it. And the beauty is that when he goes on and he says, you know, you'll realize I'm in my father and you are in me and I'm in you. He's saying this belovedness that's freely offered to us, this intimacy between us and the Father, it's also offered one to another. That, that God forms a family of his beloved, a place of belonging. That you and I, when we come into the family of God, when we come into the church, we no longer have to feel the scent of abandonment or disappointment or disorientation or dislocation. Because God begins to work through us to minister into those very same stories and to sow hope. And so we see Jesus in the faces of those he's gifted us with in community. I don't believe that you choose your community. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that we should be under the guiles that we think that we choose the community based on whatever our very human preferences are of what's in and what's out and 
what's good and what's not. I think you're chosen into communion. I think you're chosen into it. And then it becomes less about your preferences and it becomes more about a gift that you receive with open hands. And next Sunday, we're going to be starting this series on loving community and talking about now we have this foundation of belovedness, of knowing who God has called us to be. So how do we allow that belovedness to flow through us to one another, that it continues to bind us together as a loving community? Let's continue on in the story, picking up in verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I think the second thing that John is inviting us to recognize that the Spirit does in us is that he gives us courage. That the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us, advocating for us, defending us, gives us courage. That Jesus promises, I will be with you always. I will never abandon you. I will never reject you. Even in the darkest moments of your story, even in the darkest moments of human history, The Spirit of God promises to be there for us, advocating for us and defending us. You know, last week, we examined this beautiful phrase that's spoken of Jesus, that he came from God and returns to God. And I said we can also read that if God is love, that he came from love and he's going to love. That the power and the authority of Jesus is because he knows his source and he also knows his destination. And what's the fear that you and I experience? It's it's when we don't have a story to attach ourselves to. When we feel like we're just adrift in kind of the human narrative. That we don't know what's going on. We don't know where we've come from. We don't know where we're going. Again, when I think about these two, even these past two weeks, it can feel so disorienting and so scary because we don't know what's happening. But in Jesus... We know where we've come from, and we know where he's taking us, and that gives us confidence. That gives us courage to meet the world the way that it really is today. And I think the power of this is that Jesus could not prepare us for every contingency in life. You know, sometimes we talk about the Bible as this, this uh, you know, this life manual that, you know, if something pops up in your life, you can turn to page 272 and it tells you what to do. Well, this week I was looking for the line that tells us what to do about, you know, nuclear proliferation in, in North Korea or whatever. And wouldn't you know what? The Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. You know, and sometimes we wish it did. I know there's been many points in my life where I've just... I I want the manual. I want something that's in the book just to tell me what to do, whether it's in my personal life or whether it's in the life globally. I was even um, engaging in conversation with a friend today, and and many of you know, you know, I'm a big pacifist and I love to fight about that. Um, But, you know, oftentimes we get these, you know, uh, these very good questions saying, well, what are we supposed to do about Syria? What are we supposed to do about, um, you know, persecution of individuals or whole people groups? And I said, I don't know. I don't don't know what we're supposed to do. 
I struggle with those same questions. But I think the struggle is part of it. The struggle is the part of the journey that we're invited to. Because so easily we can just reach for the quick answer that actually removes us from the moment, that shuts down our divine imagination, that closes our ears to maybe see what God has to say. And we continue to kind of maneuver through life as closed off as possible, not having to to deal with the world the way that it really is. But the beauty of the courage that the Spirit of Jesus gives us is that it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into the unknown. It's the Holy Spirit in our ear that continues to whisper to us, do not be afraid. Do not let your heart be troubled because I'm with you. That's the second thing that we want to explore this year. Not only looking at loving community, but also bold exploration. And how do we be a people guided by the Holy Spirit into the unknown that are so sensitive to his voice that we come across all of these things in our personal lives and and our national life and our global life that we don't know what to do. But we have the patience and we have the sensitivity to slow down and to listen to do as the beloved disciple did, to incline upon the chest of Jesus to listen to the heartbeat of God and to allow that to guide us into the unknown. And so we have this, this picture of belovedness that the Spirit gives us. We have this picture of courage that the Holy Spirit gives us. And then the third and final thing is peace. So I want us to kind of pass through the story of the crucifixion on Good Friday, pass through that moment of silence on Holy Saturday, and come to the resurrection when Jesus first appears to his disciples. In John 20, I love how it starts. It says, on the first day of the new week. And there's a symbolism there that's hearkening back to Genesis. When we're talking about days and weeks, we're talking about creation. And what John wants to say is, on the first day of the new week, he's saying the first day of the new creation. And so Peter and John, they run down to the tomb and they find it empty and they go back and report to all the other disciples. And then Mary Magdalene, she runs down there and she finds the empty tomb and she starts to weep. And then she bumps into a guy in the garden and she thinks he's the gardener and the divine punchline is, he is the gardener, but not the gardener that she thought it was. Because this is the new Adam. This is the new Eden. This is the new story that God's writing through his Messiah. And so now we have Jesus revealing himself to the disciples for the first time. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the room, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You can imagine these disciples feeling the guilt of betraying, running away from Jesus feeling that disappointment of having watched their leader taken away and hung on a cross and murdered, 
of being scattered everywhere, of thinking the revolution's over. We missed it. He wasn't really the Messiah. And they've got the doors locked because they're afraid. And all of a sudden, that same guy, their Messiah, walks through a locked door. You wouldn't be very surprised if his first words were, peace be with you, because they're probably losing their minds. But the beauty of this is Jesus is saying, I spoke all these things and I enacted all these things and you didn't get it and that's okay because now I want to reveal to you on the other side of crucifixion. Now does it make sense? Now do you see what I've been talking about this whole time? And it says that they were overjoyed because they were finally ready to receive Jesus not as they thought he should be but in the way that he truly is which is even more beautiful than anything that they could have painted for themselves. And I love that the first thing that Jesus said to them is peace be with you. The Hebrew word there is shalom. And it means wholeness. It means completeness. It kind of has this eye towards perfection, but not in the way that you and I tend to think of perfection in the Western world. We think perfection means checking off all the boxes and getting it all right. In that case, none of us can achieve perfection. But when Jesus is saying peace be with you, he's saying be whole, be complete. It's a relational word, that we have peace when we're back in, in good relationship with ourselves, when we've no longer been broken apart by all of the curses spoken over us and enacted in our lives, and we're brought back into wholeness and completeness in Christ. But that peace is also extended between us and God, that we're brought back into full and whole and complete relationship with him. You know, a lot of times we paint peace as merely the absence of violence, as if the definition of peace was some sort of a negative that creates this void and we don't know what to put in it. But this Hebraic sense of peace is so full and so whole and so complete. And I love that Jesus says, peace be with you, and then he breathes on them. and He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And again, here we find this Genesis image that when God creates mankind, he takes the humus, he takes the soil, and he crafts a man out of it, but that's not enough. He also breathes into the soil to animate it, to bring it to life and to make man and to make woman. Technically, the formula for a woman is a little bit more complicated than that, but you can go and look at that story at some other point. But Jesus breathes on them. He breathes into their lungs. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because in this new world that God's enacting, this new Eden, this new creation, Jesus needs spirit-animated humans to do what we could not do in the past, which is to be the reflection of the image of God in a world that desperately cries out for reconciliation. And so the peace that Jesus breathes over his disciples after the resurrection is the same peace that Jesus breathes over you and I and into our lungs. The peace that brings us into reconciliation with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The peace that brings us together as the new people of God. No longer divided by race or socioeconomic status but brings us together because we've been united in Christ because of what he's done for us. And I think that is the meaning of evangelism in God's new world, is that we go out and we share good news, and guess what? It kind of needs to sound good if it's going to be good news. 
But peace, peace is good news. And I believe that there is some inkling of the Spirit of God at work in every living human being that speaks that to them every moment of every day. I do not believe there is a human alive today that on some level is not aware that peace is good news, that reconciliation with God is good news, that reconciliation within humanity is very good news. And the evangelism that you and I are called to, it's not about handing out tracts. It's not about, you know, going door to door. And there's all these different techniques that we have that are really effective, but at the core of it, it's about us sharing the good news of the gospel of offering the peace that comes through a transformation because the Holy Spirit is at work within us, but he's also at work through us, which brings me to my final point. The same spirit of Jesus that advocates for us will advocate through us. The same spirit of Jesus that's at the right hand of the Father right now, calling you by name, defending you, standing up for you, that same spirit that's within you right now doing the same wants to work through you to advocate for others. And this is what Jesus says here at the very end. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's very curious that Jesus here begins to talk about the forgiveness of sins. But even just a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at the story of the adulteress who's uh, about to be stoned by the Jewish religious leaders, we saw what Jesus really means by forgiveness. And it's essentially this, that Jesus is letting someone else's story move past the point of offense. Because all of those things that were said to us in our lives, all these curses that were spoken over us said, your story has already been written. What happens when we live out of unforgiveness and bitterness is we tie someone back to a moment in history and say, you're not allowed to move past that moment. And the ironic thing is that that's what happens to us. When we live out of unforgiveness and bitterness, we tie ourselves back to a moment. And our stories aren't able to move forward into God's beautiful future. And so when we take this idea of forgiveness of sins and we kind of blow it out bigger than what it, what it appears on first view, we realize that we're called to allow the story of the world to continue to move past the point of offense and into the possibility of the new world. But this means that you and I, we have to have the vision and the trust in God to, re- to recognize that he wants to move in us and through us. Because if Jesus has given us a spirit of advocacy that wants to see the story of mankind move forward, there's another um, evil at work in the world today in the spirit of the Satan the spirit of accusation, the spirit that points the finger and says, you're not allowed to move past this moment. And we have to trust that God delivers us from that as the comforter, as the paraclete. He saves us from those lies and leads us into his new world. But that requires that you and I have hope. And I think that's the thing that comes through peace with the Holy Spirit is that hope, real Christian hope, refuses to accept things the way that they currently are. Real, genuine hope offered to us by the Holy Spirit today looks at your own story, looks at those places of brokenness or disappointment or abandonment and says, nah, that's not okay. This story's not done. We're gonna continue to move this forward into reconciliation. But it's that same spirit of hope that looks at our global crises and says, uh-uh, that's not how this is going to end. 
And it's that hope that gives us that bigger vision of what the world looks like when God is in charge. When Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord over all and every knee will bow and every tongue confesses. And the beauty of us being loving community is that we get to practice heaven in advance of its full coming. And so you and I being called to be people of peace means that we practice, we incarnate heaven now within ourselves and within our community. And from here, God radiates it out into a world that's crying out for his move, for his character. Peace is the journey for all believers, but peace is the destination for the whole world. But we need him to give us vision for that because we can't create that on our own. So let's stand and we're going to worship and we're going to celebrate that not only can we look back 2,000 years on at these stories and in some way be inspired by the Jesus that we see there, but we also get to recognize the Jesus standing right next to us in this very moment who's advocating for us, who's defending us, who's sticking up for us, who's continuing to transform us, to offer us peace, to bring us back into reconciliation with the Father. We get to celebrate that we are new creation people that we're part of this new world, that we're this family that God is sowing together out of all of the rejects and the not good enoughs, that he's giving us new definition as his beloved in whom he is well pleased. So if you want to close your eyes and we'll pray, and I just want us to be open tonight to allow the spirit to work within us. Perhaps you're feeling like the Lord want someone to pray over you. I encourage you to turn to the person next to you. Let them lay hands on you and pray that the Spirit would reveal himself in new ways that continue that process of transformation. Maybe you have big question marks when it comes to your own sense of belovedness. Maybe you don't really feel like you have a lot of courage right now. Maybe you feel that chaos inside that's preventing you from receiving peace. I encourage you, reach out to your brothers and sisters. Allow them to lay hands on you and to pray for you, and let's see what the Spirit will do. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son. Not only for what he accomplished for us on the cross and the forgiveness of sins, but in his resurrection, we find new life. We get to be part of this new world. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in us and through us tonight. Any places where we, we are questioning belovedness or courage or peace, begin to minister to us there, Lord, that we want to believe that you're alive and at work today, and we get to participate in that. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.